This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hey folks, a quick word about today's episode. As we're ending 2020, at Christianity Today, we're looking at a number of stories that we think reflect some of the most important and most interesting work happening in global Christianity. The hope is that these stories stretch our minds and imaginations, giving us an expanded sense of what's possible for the kingdom of God and for our participation in it. That includes the story you're about to hear. You can see the rest of these stories, including the one featured on our new podcast, Adopting Hope, at the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Ross Mason's work has spanned across the country and across the globe. He's worked in real estate, corporate banking, and the health industries, seeking to innovate in various ways in each field. And when you read his biography, you'll see that there's kind of a freewheeling spirit running across the board in his life. He was a semi-pro athlete competing in triathlons. He loved ice climbing, diving. He even got certified as a NASCAR driver at one point. This adventurous spirit emerged very, very early in Ross's life. Yeah, they had problems with me as a even a three-year-old climbing out of the roof. And, uh, <laughs> the two-year-old running away. I loved the firemen. There was a fire station down the street, and I used to love to run over there and talk to the firemen. I mean, when I was two years old, three years old. I don't remember when I learned how to swim. They threw me in as a... I mean, I was sub 18 months. I made it just over a year old. They were just leaving us there. And they thought, you know, they were just grabbing our little hands and teaching us to swim in the pool very carefully. You know, what they were actually doing, what the guy actually did was just throw us in the pool. And, <laughs> and so I learned to swim. I learned to swim very early and I don't remember it. And I learned to ride a bike. I think I was two and a half years old. And I, I kept bothering my father for several months to take off the training wheels and he wouldn't do it and I <laughs> finally convinced him and I just wrote it off um, so I, I think that was something I was born with hmm. was it like a, a thrill seeking thing like you wanted to kind of live on the edge and experience well, these I things, just don't or? like to feel inhibited I, I don't like boundaries I don't like borders I don't like walls I just I like you know free association in my thinking I love looking at possibilities I'm an ENFP, Myers-Briggs, which is the sort of the same personality type Robin Williams has. I mean, you know, if you think of him as a stereotypically ENFP, and I'm not, I don't have that kind of gift, you know, for humor, certainly that he does, or free association. You know, how think, how happy do you think he would be as an accountant? It's all the more remarkable to hear these stories when you know the rest of Ross's story. That in 2007, he suffered a C6 spinal cord injury that left him paralyzed from the neck down. But that adventurous spirit wasn't hindered by his paralysis. If anything, it propelled him to look more determinedly for ways to express that spirit for his own good and for the good of the world. There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. With everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings. And then he goes And what it means It's hard to know 
From Christianity Today, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's episode, Ross Mason and I talk about the many facets of his work, the experience of trauma and loss after his accident, and the work he's been part of since. It's a story of healing and determination, as well as remarkable innovation. So stay with us. Ross grew up in the South, in a Christian home, and had the experience that many Christians have of not really knowing a time in his life when he didn't believe the gospel. But like everyone, there were important and life-shaping inflection points along the way. The most impactful meeting I had growing up was with Corey Ten Boone when I was seven years old. Corey Ten Boone, of course, was a Dutch Christian who during the Second World War worked with her father and sister to help Jews escape from the Holocaust. She was caught, imprisoned at Ravensbrook, and ultimately survived to share her story for the rest of her life as a witness to God's faithfulness in dark places. That conversation was just a, a life-changing conversation to, for me when she talked about forgiving the prison guard that came up to her and who she recognized as one of the people most responsible for Betsy's death, her sister at Raven's book and Brooke, and when he asked for forgiveness and the story of her father saying, you know, the Nazis almost were afraid of him. And he was in his eighties and said, Mr. Tim Boone, we know you're a man of your word. If you give us your word that you will not continue to help the Jews, we'll let you die here in your bed in comfort. And he said, if you leave me here, I will do everything within my power to help God's ancient and chosen people and do all that I can for them. And he died in less than a week in a gas chamber. I I just never forgot that. I can imagine she just has a presence about her having been through what she's been through. What she was doing with it would become very meaningful for me later because the Nuremberg Laws started with Goring giving uh, the Nuremberg Address on the radio and he announced that they were going to start exterminating people with disabilities. And nobody reacted. And it was the first step of what Hitler referred to as useless eaters. It was the first major step they took to see what resistance they got. And nobody resisted. But then Corey, after, was given concentration camps by the German government, who had been in one. And one of the first things she did was minister to Germans that were now homeless, disabled, disenfranchised, and starving from World War II in the very concentration camps that had been used to extinguish those people before and during the war. Like he said, that story would become so important to his later work after his injury. But when he first set out in the world, in the early 90s, he wasn't quite sure where life would take him. He wanted to go to Princeton, but he didn't get in and ended up at Georgia Tech instead. After that, he applied for business school at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He did get in there, but decided to defer and head, of all places, to Russia instead. He'd been over to Eastern Europe before with Campus Crusade, and he wanted to go back 
take advantage of the business opportunities opening up in the aftermath of the fall of communism and gain some business experience before entering Wharton. So they had these wonderful assets, but there was no way to borrow money. So these, you got five Russian families moving, living in a flat and they could, and it's all based on your proximity to the Kremlin is what the real estate price is basically. And your proximity to Metro stop. They've got one of the nicest metros in the world. If they could rent it to me, I'd spend a fortune, you know, securing the entire wing of the building, you know, with concierge and renovate the stairwell and put all Western appliances and electric in their apartment, lease it from them for five years, pay them above what they're going to get in the market. What the mob was doing is renting it from you, shooting you and taking over your apartment. Because I speak English and I'm 21 years old, they're not worried about an American shooting them. You know, and I'm showing up with this, the head of Coca-Cola for Russia is living in their apartment. They're not worried about him shooting them either. And so, you know, they know that they're gonna get paid in US dollars. So with the rampant inflation, that's an investment in itself. I'm gonna pay him cash three months in advance. There's no other way they're gonna get their hands on US dollars. Hmm. Yeah, every day it goes by, that was worth more money than it was yesterday. And they know I'm not gonna shoot them. And I just said to them, what do you want in your apartment? And I gave them everything they wanted. And with the Westerner, they were so glad to have their families over and they had no price sensitivity. You know, if, if the budget, Coca-Cola gave them a budget of $12,000 a month for their housing, if they spend $5,000 a month, they don't pocket that $7,000. So they've got no incentive to save money. So I would just ask them, what do you want? You want a chef? You want a driver? You know, you want language lessons? And I would add and add and add and add to the price of the rent. And they would pay me 12 to 15 months up front, 10 to 12 times what I was paying the Russian who I was getting the first three months for free because I was renovating their apartment. And then I would pay them three months in advance after that. So, I mean, it was just coining money. Business boomed. He was renting these properties at a rate that benefited everybody. Above market rates for the Russians, jobs for drivers and chefs, and comfortable accommodations for Westerners living in Moscow, who, like him, were trying to be a part of this expanding economy. He really only ran into trouble one time. I got a new office manager, unfortunately, before I went off to school, and that person ended up renting it to the Russian mafia, and they turned my apartment into a brothel. And so I was going to fly over with a suitcase of cash, and I, I got a tip from my accountant who'd heard from my cook, who was friends of my old office manager's mother, that they were going to arrest me at the airport for involvement in a prostitution ring, and I'd better not show up with a suitcase of cash, which... I had nothing to do with. So I called a friend who was doing business with the mayor of Moscow, Lushkov's nephew. And he basically had the Russian equivalent of the CIA slash special forces. They had 25 people. He threatened to kill every, kill us all, the, guy, the mafia person. Hmm. So I had to put the whole operation on cell phones and pagers and shut down any physical presence so they, he didn't kill my employees. Basically, they sent in 25 people with machine guns and basically told the guy they were going to kill him, all of his associates, and all of their families if he ever spoke to us again. And that was the Russian government saying that, so we did not hear from him again. <laughs> but I had to drop out of the lauder program to go set everything up again. 
And eventually you got out of, out of business in Moscow, right? Uh, I just gave the business to my employees after 12 years. Okay. I just let them take it over at no cost. I just gave it to them. I had a loyal staff who'd been running it. And I just basically handed them the assets and said, you know, you've been managing without me. Basically, you should get the upside. Here's the business. In the midst of this, he finished business school. And upon graduation, he began working for Morgan Stanley, first in Europe and then back in Georgia. So I helped open the uh, private banking office in Atlanta. I was from Georgia. And I just realized private banking wasn't what I wanted to do. I mean, I was used to, you know, if I had a problem, I would say to the tenant, what do you need to fix? And I would pay for it. I mean, I just, there was never, you know, I would apologize and I would always, you know, go above and beyond. But in, a, in the investment banking, private banking world, you don't ever apologize. You can't make it right. And if you lose somebody's money, well, that's their problem. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't like working that way, honestly. You know, I wanted to make it right. And it kept me up at night. And I felt like, honestly, the focus, and there were great people there, but the focus was how do I generate the most fees for the bank is what you need to be focused on, not how do I get the best tax after tax return for the client? And people were very predatory in trying to build up their financial empires. Some of them were re- very altruistic and had the right intent and did the job for the right reasons. Others didn't, and you didn't know who they were. And until you got big enough, uh, you got run over. And I didn't want to be in that equation for eight or 10 years until I was big enough to, to do what was in my client's best interest on their behalf. So I left. My family traveled around Africa. We visited, uh, did the bungee jump at Victoria Falls and, and then visited a hospital in Zimbabwe. And 86% of the patients had AIDS. It was some neighbors in little Greensboro, Georgia near Madison. I mean, Madison's 3,500 people at the time. Greensboro's maybe 700 people. And these were a husband, wife, physician couple that opened this hospital. There was a nurse raising 22 children. It was all of her siblings and cousins, their children who died of AIDS. And she was raising them. She had no biological children. Those were, she was the only person in her generation that was still alive, raising 22 kids on that nurse's salary. And there are all these campfires at night. And I said, what on earth are all these campfires? And they said, oh, that's the people that have sick patients, the family members, the patients. They've walked several hundred miles to bring them here, and now they're killing and roasting game so the patients have something to eat. I remember they needed $1,000 for a blood machine to see if somebody had AIDS or not. They couldn't afford it. And so I bought it for them, and I just couldn't believe how far the dollar went. And that's when I real, really felt a sense of uh, calling in healthcare. Hmm. And so I moved to Silicon Valley, started a healthcare software company, I sold it to the other founders, and that's what got me into healthcare. I was in Africa in August 99 and moved to Silicon Valley later that year. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, 
Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. You know, I got involved with angel investors in Silicon Valley, and that was one of the biggest things that ever happened in my life and career. And uh, what angel investors do is they take the entrepreneur from the idea stage to the venture capitalist who builds companies. But they're the ones who it's almost like, you know, you go, you don't buy, you don't plant your Christmas tree in your backyard. You pick the size you want. You take, well, somebody's got to grow that tree. That's what angel investors do with companies. And I wanted to do that in philanthropy, and I wanted to do it in healthcare-connected philanthropy. So I started Henry when I moved to Silicon Valley, the High Impact Network of Responsible Innovators. Honestly, at July 24, 2004, at 4.30 in the morning, three times I felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me to get up and pray. And for the next six to eight hours, God showed me what my life's work was to be, what my calling was, and that I was to move back to the land of my father's and focus on healthcare for the next season. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And so that brought me back to Georgia. I started Henry. Two months later, the governor put me on the state health board, which I would later chair. But that's what brought me back to Georgia. That's what created Henry, which has sort of been my life's work. And I was uh, still doing, you know, I've been surfing around the world and Helped a friend launch an adventure travel company that does the scuba diving, nice climbing. I did the NASCAR stuff out on the West Coast. And I was training for the Ironman New Zealand. And uh, there's something called the Silver Comet Trail that's an old railroad bed. Atlanta used to be called Terminus. It's a railroad that runs from Atlanta to Birmingham. And they basically pulled up the track and put a bike path and rollerblading, all that stuff. I got a B in my helmet. I started to slow down and it stung me. And I was on a relatively new bike. And it was just as I was going out of the air position to grab the brakes. And I inadvertently moved my elbow and it shot me off and I hit a tree and broke my neck at C5 and 6 and I uh, was paralyzed from my collarbones down. I-, I can imagine that season was incredibly difficult because here you are, your life is a story of kind of one success and one adventure after another. And then you literally hit the tree and all of a sudden everything gets put on pause. What's going through your mind? What's going through your heart in those moments? You know, when it happened, I landed in a bush and it didn't cut me, but it was pressing so hard against my neck, I couldn't breathe. Hmm. So I tried to push it away from me so I could breathe and I couldn't use my hands. I had to do it with my forearm at seven o'clock in the evening. And uh, and I just sort of said, okay, Lord. and. Uh, and I never passed out. I didn't break my helmet too. Hmm. Somebody saw me go off. Who just it turned out his brother-in-law 
had had a very similar injury under different circumstances, dove and hit a sandbar in the ocean two and a half months before. And we became good friends at the Shepherd Center, but where I went was taken. But in the ambulance, you know, they said, first they say, what day of the week is it? Who's the president of the United States? And they're trying to see if you have a brain injury and you're processing information. So they did all that. You can't see anything because you've got a neck brace on. You know, you're just looking up the ceiling. I couldn't move anyway. I couldn't move my arms at that point very well either. They're cutting off my clothes. And this guy, and I was joking around and cutting up with him, you know, just kind of telling jokes and laughing. And and the guy said, look, I mean, your pulse is so low. Your blood pressure is so low. You could die any moment. Why are you joking around? And I said, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I'm either going to see him in a few minutes or he has something else for me to do, and I'm I'm, I'm very happy either way. And that, that was my attitude, and I didn't ask why me or anything like that. I just, you know, at one point, seven weeks later, I prayed that God would give me back the use of my hands and fingers. That was the first time I talked to him about the accident, really. First, you just, you've got so much drugs, you feel like you're in a dream or something. You're not even sure you're in and out of consciousness, you're in so much pain. You don't know what a spinal cord injury entails. Frankly, you're just trying to survive the first 24 to 48 hours and you're dealing with right what's right in front of you. So you're not thinking a lot. You don't know whether or not you're gonna recover or not. Nobody's talking to you about the severity of your injury. You're not making any of your own medical decisions. And then later you start to deal with things one at a time, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, in a way, my my attitude was, I am honored that God would trust me with a challenge like this because we all lose our health. We're here for a very, very short time. What I'm most concerned about is how to have the biggest impact for Christ. If this is gonna equip me or enable me to somehow have a greater impact for Christ, which is what the scriptures tell me, all things work together for good, for those who love the Lord and calling according to his purpose in Romans 8, 28, then God's going to use it for good, and my good and his glory, then I'm fine. You know, what's the problem? I mean, that was my attitude. And my father, oddly enough, had always told us, I don't know why, he said, look, I want you to follow, I'm very grateful for it, but he'd always told us growing up, you should follow your calling and passion in life, what you believe God made you to do, equipped you to do, and is calling you to do. And I want to support that. I don't care if you're a school teacher in Africa or a derivatives trader in New York or whatever. I, I don't care. You pursue your gifting and your calling. If anything ever happens and you're injured and disabled, I mean, he literally said that, hmm. then don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of it. Hmm. So I was operating under those ground rules uh, until I was told differently five years later. Hmm. But my dad sat me down and said, I know what I told you, all my investments are in banking and real estate, and we're about to lose everything we have, and I need you to get a job. Hmm. And I said, okay. (laughs) So I resigned as chairman of the state health board and prayed about it, and I had a seven-fold increase in my annual income, had one consulting job before that. God gave me seven more, and I've been fine ever since. I just you know, things just came along and I did what I needed to do. Even though he'd been in the healthcare business for a long time before his accident, something in him awakened after the accident about how broken our healthcare system is. 
It takes 17 years for best practice to become common practice in the U.S. healthcare system. It reminded me of private banking. It's all driven by money. We've completely divorced the doctor-patient relationship. We've inserted bureaucrats into the system. We're trying to nationalize healthcare and dehumanize it. We're treating people as a machine and not an eternal child of God with a body, soul, and spirit. We have removed God from the process, prayer. So I realized that really, we're just an ATM machine on a conveyor belt, and each fraction of the healthcare system is there to extract the dollar. They put in the code and extract the dollar. That's our healthcare system. And uh, we have over 100,000 wrongful deaths each year in healthcare. We talk about the coronavirus and everybody makes it. We've lost whatever, a quarter million people. But, you know, 100,000 a year, that's like a 747 going down every other day and killing everybody on board. How long would it take for us to change the airline industry if that's what was happening? We do nothing in healthcare. We do nothing because of pharmaceutical and insurance industry and their lobbies control our legislation. So, for example, with a spinal cord injury, the insurance companies don't want to pay for somebody like me. So they dump me onto Medicare after two years, which then means they don't want to pay for anything during that two years because they're not going to bear the financial consequences of the decisions they make in the short term and the long term. Hmm. So my insurance company, I was a semi-pro athlete training for an Ironman triathlon vice chairman of our state health board, $13.2 billion annual budget. I know every CEO of every insurance company in the state, and they took the position that my paralysis from the neck down, collarbones down, was a pre-existing condition and refused to pay for a penny of my care for the first seven months of my hospitalization. That's our healthcare industry in the U.S. I know you've been working to change the system. You've been investing in various ways. What, What has that looked like? Yeah, so Henry, I started in 04. So I was doing Henry three years before I was injured. Okay. But you asked me if my perspective changed. It did dramatically in two sets. I started Henry in August of 04. I was injured three years later in August of 07. So I've already done our first two projects. So what we really do with Henry is three different things. And we're about to add a fourth. But the three things are we partner with nonprofit innovators and get them whatever they need to be more effective at saving lives, saving money, and having a sustainable impact. So that's, Amy O'Dell is an example of that. So we do what an angel investor would do in Silicon Valley for an entrepreneur in building their company. We do that with nonprofit innovators for their organizations. That's what we do. That's what Henry does. So that's one thing we do. We have a portfolio of projects that we raise money for them, put their boards together, introduce strategic partners, technology, management team, whatever they need to accelerate it so they can get large nonprofit gifts in the same way that an angel investor would do that for an entrepreneur so they can get large venture capital investments. It's exactly the same principle. So we are doing exactly the same thing I was doing in the for-profit in Silicon Valley We're performing exactly the same role that an angel investor did in the for-profit space, only we're doing it in the the philanthropy area. And so it's it's angel philanthropy or venture philanthropy. That's what we do. So first of all, we do that for innovators. We partner with innovators. We bring innovators in to solve a problem we want to solve. We start coalitions and we create 
nonprofits. That's the, we do those things. Second, we buy companies that themselves give monies to the charities we want to support and employ the vulnerable populations we serve. For instance, if it invested in a cooling towel company that'll employ people on the autistic spectrum. So we first do it for nonprofits. We second build businesses for profit and nonprofit. And third, we create digital and physical platforms of innovation where we create these ecosystems of innovation can occur. So Emory is doing a $1 billion neuroscience campus. We want to partner with them on spinal cord injury. It's on 27 acres now. I moved back to Georgia to do a health innovation campus. That now is a reality in the largest skyscraper in Atlanta, the AT&T Tower. I think that's going to end up being about a $500 million initiative that's focused on global health initiatives in partnership with the CDC and health agencies around the world in commercializing things like COVID vaccines. So those three areas Henry's always been focused on. Projects, portfolios of businesses to fund those nonprofit initiatives and build brand awareness and employ the vulnerable populations and platforms. We do those three things. And now we're launching a venture fund on top of that to accelerate the entire process. And that venture fund will focus on giving away as much money as possible. So that will formalize that business process and accelerate the environments, the different platforms that have been created. When you dig into the work of Henry, you'll find that it spans the country and the globe. Their initiatives are aimed at improving the lives and health care of a variety of people, many of whom fall outside the care of our regular health care system. They're invested in remarkable work related to spinal cord injuries, which you'll hear about in a second. But they've also helped launch what's called the Creative Destruction Lab, a kind of incubator meant to generate ideas that might help the world recover from the COVID pandemic. They've also invested in efforts like Jacob's Ladder, a private school in Atlanta where dynamic new approaches to the care of children with autism, neurologic disorders, and other cognitive dysregulation are producing amazing results. Is there a bell that goes off in your head that's almost like instinct when you know the diff? Like, how do you know the difference between a good idea and a bad idea when you're in these conversations? Because you're just getting bombarded with... The whole we- thing, everything that's driving us is prayer. Hmm. Everything. I-, I know that I don't know. So I ask God, and God knows what the person needs. Maybe not what they want, but what do they need? And so I'm trying always to listen to the Holy Spirit. You know, that, that's what is driven Henry. And every divine appointment we've had has been an answer to intensive prayer. We have a weekly prayer meeting. I mean, we had a, our only fundraiser. I told you we never raised money, Right. But we had an executive director. We started having this need for funds. So I met this guy. I was asked to introduce Bruce Wilkinson at an event I love. I was just on the phone with him for an hour and 20 minutes this morning. I love Bruce. I was introducing him at a function for donors. He had 40 high net worth couples. There was a guy in the room, and he wanted to meet Bruce. He looked and sounds just like George Clooney. So because Because I'm talking to the guy, right? And what do I say to the guy? how can I help you, right? I mean, of course, that's going to, I'm immediately going to say that at the end of the conversation. He says, I'd like to meet Bruce Wilkinson. I said, okay, right? So I get to know the guy. He comes and visits me twice in Atlanta. And I kept saying, how can I help you? How can I help you? How can I help you? He said, no, stop. He said, 
You're not helping me, okay? I'm the CEO of Waterstone. We represent a thousand Christian family offices. I want to help you. I want to hire this group in Atlanta to do a fundraiser for you, and I'm paying for all of it, hmm. all of it. And we uh, wanted to raise $9.2 million. And I didn't know the people to invite. Three weeks before the event, my brother introduced me to somebody he met in a snowstorm. That guy invited 27 high net worth couples, 20 showed up, and three of them pledged $103.5 million. I'd never met any of them, ever. One of them was a $100 million pledge. Hmm. I don't know if we'll get it or not, we'll see. But that's the way things happen with Henry. And it's because we got, you know, we got out of the way, we give our widows mites and whatever we got, our loaves and fishes, we put them in the nail scarred hands of Christ and he feeds the multitudes. I don't have to worry about feeding the multitudes. I just got to show up with what's in my lunch pail. So that's the way we do things. One of the most remarkable projects Henry is working on is with UCLA, an effort to completely transform the standard of care and the outcome expectations for people with severe spinal cord injuries. I got a phone call by three people in two days, six and a half years ago. They said, Ross, there's this young man. He's been paralyzed from his chest down. He was he's a legal immigrant from Cuba. At five years old, he won the lot. They have a lottery in Cuba, 5,000 people a year they let come to the United States. So he came here legally. He supported himself since he was 14, working three jobs. He had a double major in aerospace at Georgia Tech and finance in Georgia State with a 3.85. He was the only person in US Air Force ROTC history at Georgia Tech to be selected for a pilot and navigator slot. He selected to fly the F-16, one of five people in the Southeast. He gave his valedictory address at Georgia Tech. Somebody ran a red light going 50 miles an hour, hit him 700 feet from his intersection, killed him for 15 minutes. He was in a coma for four months, died four times, broke nine ribs, had both lungs collapsed, 27 other injuries, 15 blood transfusions. He's about to die. Will you help him? So uh, he's, been, he's been injured for two and a half years. Medicare was giving him nine hours of care a day. The guy's completely paralyzed, basically. He can't even feed himself. He can't turn himself at night. He's got a skin sore the size of three fingers all the way to his skeleton. You know, so he's got to decide, am I going to be turned at night or am I going to eat with the nine hours of funding I have? So I said, look, just move in with me. So he did. He lived here five years. And we together started working on spinal cord injury. And I, through Stanford, met the Rick Hansen Institute, now called Praxis. Rick Hansen pushed his wheelchair around the world, over 40,000 kilometers across 34 countries. And they have the largest, they asked me to chair commercialization. I served on the board for six years. And we started looking for a cure for paralysis. I think we, we have it. And We've looked at the, the best solutions all over the world. It's gonna be a mosaic. It's gonna be a variety of different things. But what we're doing with Dr. Reggie Edgerton at UCLA, we've gotten 12 out of 12 patients. So the way this spinal cord injury works is for people that haven't been exposed like me before or you now, you're classified as in the US as complete or incomplete. That just simply means do you have function sensation below the break or not right after the injury? If you don't, then you're classified as complete. You don't get therapy and rehab and you're taught to be in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. If you're incomplete, 
then you demonstrate recovery first and then we'll pay for rehab. That's the way it works. Hmm. In China, you walk six hours a day, six days a week for six months, all paid for for all spinal cord injury. So we're just barbaric. I mean, we're in the dark ages with spinal cord injury. We have to go elsewhere to go. So there's a non-invasive, we can now do surgical implants that can let people like me stand and walk but you don't want to do that for a cervical injury, a broken neck, because if you, you have to redo the surgery every two years, if you screw it up, you're going to put somebody on a respirator for the rest of their life, basically. So we can now do it with stimulation from the skin. We've gotten 12 out of 12 patients walking again. Some of them like me, who've been in a wheelchair for more than 10 years. So now with Henry, with Henry Labs, this guy, was number one in his class with a 4.0 in biomedical engineering at Tech, the number one master's program in that area in the country. He's now getting his PhD in the field at UCLA. We're partnering with the Veterans Administration, which is the only entity in the United States that's responsible financially for the long-term care of spinal cord patients. They have 23,000 veterans with spinal cord injury, 3,198 of them are quads. The lifetime care of the quads alone is 500 million a year. 11 billion lifetime cost only if they never have another quadriplegic injury. Again, just the quads. We think we can reduce that cost by half with this technology. Hmm. So we are trying to pilot that clinical trial. We are getting people up and walking. They are having children the natural way, which is impossible with a complete spinal cord injury. They're going to the bathroom on their own, which is impossible with spinal cord injury. They no longer need caregivers, which was impossible with their spinal cord injury. And so we're trying to get the word out to, to pay for that clinical trial. And we are getting people out of wheelchairs. And the VA has said they would like, they've expressed interest in opening a 10 to $15 million center to focus on doing this for veterans nationwide in all 24 centers. So the need though, is that first several hundred thousand of funding, we have been just bootstrapping and we really want to get that done. So that's the critical need for us. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Cultivated is a production of Christianity Today. If you like the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening. It helps other people find the show. This episode was produced by me. It was edited by Mark Owens. Our music is by Dan Phelps. Our theme song is Eden Was a Garden by Roman Candle. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.